This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, the war in Ukraine is coming to a head. I understand how people looking at this war in this country after over a year maybe getting tired. Stavros Lambernidis is the EU's ambassador to the U.S. But I will tell you that there is no safe distance from an autocrat sitting on nuclear weapons who is convinced that he can bend the will of our people and our leaders to his own through force. He cannot succeed. That is what I want people to keep in mind. A sobering and inspiring interview coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. We've reached a point in the war in Ukraine where a lot of Americans are, quote-unquote, getting tired of the war. It's called war fatigue. But Stavros Lambernidis, the EU's ambassador to the U.S., says we don't have the option of getting tired. Ambassador, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Start us off, if you will, by telling us what your concerns are as it relates to this war. I am concerned about why Russia started it and what it's trying to achieve with it. Uh, I am um, very encouraged by how the Ukrainians have managed to undermine virtually every one of Russians, uh, Russia's ambitions. And I'm proud of the fact that Americans and Europeans and other allies around the world have helped the Ukrainians to achieve that goal. But it is not over. It is extremely bloody. It is extremely brutal. Uh, And uh, we have to keep showing the determination that we have up to now uh, to support the Ukrainians to uh, regain their full uh, sovereignty and independence. What is the status of the war from your perspective at this point? Uh, The Ukrainians have managed to push the Russians back. Uh, and now the Russians are entrenched. After the winter, they entrenched themselves where they were, and the Ukrainians are planning to have a counteroffensive to be able to, um, uh, you know, disentrench them. Um, this is something that will probably start relatively soon. Uh, this is something that requires a tremendous amount of ammunition and support on our side. In some instances, we haven't had the, you know, the full scale of ammunition because we simply weren't producing that much. Uh, but now we're providing the Ukrainians and um, eventually this war will have to end and if it ends uh, as the ukrainians certainly want with uh, with uh, peace uh, uh, this will have to be the kind of discussion that takes place uh, with the russians not holding a gun on ukraine's head uh, and um, if it ends with the ukrainians having to keep fighting and pushing the russians uh, away for as long as it takes then that's how uh, it's going to end and that's how long we have to stand by the ukrainians to make sure this happens One of the things that a number of people have mentioned to me repeatedly is Russia is playing a waiting game. 
And their hope is that the resolve by the EU and the U.S. and all of the people and organizations that are supporting Ukraine will crumble. That's their hope. What's your message on that? On the assumption they're playing a waiting game, I would just say the following. Uh, the Russians are very good at adjusting uh, their failures and trying to turn them into a new quote-unquote strategy. It's not a strategy. They were not planning to play a waiting game. They were planning to take over Ukraine in four or five days. And they failed dramatically. And then they were planning uh, and hoping that uh, there would be division among Europeans or Europeans and Americans when it came both to sanctions uh, against Russia and when it came to supporting Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, in a couple of months, they were hoping eventually they would be able to achieve their goals and they failed there again. Uh, and now, um, you know, they're touting a new strategy or pe people touting it for them that somehow, uh, you know, now they have this waiting game strategy. The fact of the matter is that they will not be able to wait because the Ukrainians will, will start fighting back again, retaking territory. Uh, but most importantly, yes, Putin absolutely believes, he said this repeatedly, that the West collectively, mostly Americans in his mind, but Europeans as well, simply don't have the stomach anymore to be able to stand up to such kind of brutality, that eventually we'll get tired, our publics will get tired, um, you know, inflation in Europe or the costs of, uh, you know, shifting energy away from Russia and elsewhere that have skyrocketed, that that will get people tired. Uh, so yes, he does count on that. And, uh, and I think that it is imperative upon us to understand this. And to understand that what's at stake is not simply Ukraine, an independent country, not being able to be swallowed up by, by a brute. What's at stake is the capacity of Americans and Europeans to project influence and power in the world for decades to come. What's at stake is our allies around the world knowing, knowing, not just believing, knowing that we have the stamina to stand up to that aggression, no matter where it takes place. Now it's taking place in Ukraine, tomorrow maybe somewhere else. Everyone around the world who is thinking that violence is a better way for them to get something out of things than international law is right now looking at Ukraine and looking at how we react to it. Up to now they have been stunned and silenced because we've seen us being united and effective. And uh, there's simply no alternative to us continue to do this, uh, quite honestly. The EU has been absolutely instrumental in everything since this war started, from the messaging about the fact that it's not just Ukraine's war, but this is the world's war. And what you said a moment ago about the need for the West, the EU, and the U.S., of course, to continue to project that power, to send that message. It's absolutely important. From the very beginning, you've been there. So the aid the EU has stepped up and given has played a, a key role. Tell us today, at this point, how much have you given, what are you planning to give, and the reasoning behind it? So we've given aid that covers financial support to Ukraine and its government and its people, uh, covers military support, covers humanitarian support for the disasters happening, covers reconstruction of Ukraine. Think about the winter and how Russia, you know, bombed all the energy infrastructure, hoping to freeze them to death, and covers refugee support, over 4 million Ukrainians today in Europe have asked for protection, which means free schooling, education, housing, work for them. And it also covers support for the rest of the world when it comes to food. Russia's war ended up creating a huge food crisis for countries in Africa and elsewhere. Uh, they were trying to misinform the world and claim that it was our sanctions that caused, caused this. Of course, it wasn't. It was 
the fact that they were bombing intentionally you know, Ukrainian food silos and blocking the ports in the Black Sea that would allow those uh, grains to leave. And we as Europeans have um, jumped in massively to support Ukrainians to export those grains. That's important. Let me just say, yes, this is in Putin's mind a war against the West. He absolutely believes that we are weak and that by winning this, he will marginalize us for decades to come. But it is at the same time the war of the East and the West, of the North and the South, not against Russia, but for Ukraine, for the fundamental principles of international law and the United Nations Charter that have guaranteed for decades that big bullies around the world do not have the right to invade others just simply because they can. And that is something that any country in Africa cares about any country in Asia or Latin America cares about. And that is why the United Nations resolutions you've seen up to now, you saw so many countries, 141 every time, from all regions of the world saying that this war has to stop, Russia shouldn't have invaded, this is illegal, has to stop. Having said that, we're not out of the woods. Because of course the way that you and us look at this war is not the same way that a country in Africa might. They might look at it more through the eyes of energy prices, food prices. So for us to be able, as we are supporting the Ukrainians themselves, to at the same time support the rest of the world to avoid the collateral damage of this war caused by Russia is a strategic interest. Now, let me go back to the actual aid, though, that you asked me about. We have given, as Europeans now, more than 75 billion of support in all these fields that I mentioned. Financial support to the Ukrainian government and the people, military support, um, uh, humanitarian support, uh, refugee support, and the other stuff. About 18 billion of that is military aid. More than 41 billion is economic aid. Think about what economic aid means. It means that the country actually can pay salaries, can, uh, can, can function, the government can function, the schools can function. It is, in a sense, the financial aid equivalent to military aid. If the Ukrainian government will collapse, the war is over and it's lost for them. And then, of course, close to $18 billion in support for the refugees whom Putin weaponized. That was another thing he was hoping he could achieve. He could achieve extinguishing the spirit of Ukrainians in addition to their lives through this war. And he sent over 8 million of them away to Europe. Now, as I said, 4 million have stayed in hoping that they would not be welcomed by Europeans, that Europeans would feel suddenly that this is just too many people to handle, the costs are too high, uh, the, the social implications are too complex. So we united as Europeans to ensure that even there Putin would fail, and he has. But 20% of Ukraine's children, mark this number, 20% of Ukraine's children today are finding shelter in the European Union. This is hair-raising. None of these kids decided voluntarily to leave their homes and their villages and their schools and their friends and come to countries in Europe where they don't speak the language away from their homeland. They were forced to do this. 19,000 children have been abducted by Russia and taken to Russia from Ukraine to be re-educated and turned into Russians. That's a war crime. None of these kids asked for that. At some point, in my view, as Americans and Europeans, 
we also realized, and I was proud of that moment, that the strength of a democracy is not just the strength of its military or its economy, and we're certainly strong there, it's the strength of our values. At some point, you cannot turn a blind eye. I don't care if a year has passed or a year and a half has passed. And, and you know, I understand people may be feeling fatigue looking at this war. It's just, you know, too far away. The fact of the matter is that democracies cannot turn a blind eye to such terror, to such human rights violations. The moment we do, it is the moment that our calling card to the world loses its value. We can't have that. That was a question I was about to ask you. Um, how long will the EU stay committed to this because of that fatigue? And no, it's not you. It's not the leadership. But there are some parts of the EU that haven't necessarily gone along with this program. Well, I'll tell you, the energy prices in Europe reached 10 times their limits before the war, uh, when we um, immediately after the war decoupled from Russian fossil fuels. 40% reliance on them before the war, only 5% reliance on them today. You can imagine what a huge shift that was and how costly it was. Not a single European leader of the 27 leaders for a moment wavered when we have imposed from February 23 to today, 22 to today, 10 packages of massive sanctions. And these sanctions are hitting Europe, the European economy much more than the U.S. economy. You can imagine there's no escaping gravity. We're next to Russia. We've been there for, for centuries. We trade more with them. The costs on Europe are much higher than anywhere else, but the determination of Europe is absolutely unwavering. And that is because this fight for us is existential, as it is for the U.S. as well. It is a fight that has geostrategic consequences that could be devastating for us if Putin wins and for you. But it also has those values consequences that we stand for around the world. And if, uh, if we lose, it's a very different world and one where our capacity to be influential diminishes dramatically. So do not be concerned. I'm also, at the same time that I say this, very active on the Hill uh, with the administration in states around the country, informing them of the European Union support to Ukraine, the massive support, those 78 billion. It is absolutely necessary for Americans to know that not only are they not alone in shouldering this burden, but in fact that Europe is shouldering an even bitter, bigger part of it because we are determined that together with the United States, we will stop this dictator from taking over. And we will stop anyone else who relies on him succeeding from being able to celebrate with him any kind of success. He will face a strategic defeat here if we stay united. The United States Congress, in a bipartisan way, over the past year and a couple of months, has supported massive support to Ukraine. The administration has as well. This has made a huge difference. But the difference really is that we are doing it together. What we put in together as aid as Europeans would have been not irrelevant, but much less effective without American support. What the U.S. put in as support to Ukraine would have been not irrelevant, but much less effective than coming together with the European support. This is a transatlantic partnership that is showing its determination, its guts, and its teeth to stick by our principles and our interests. And it's demonstrating, because of the war in Ukraine, how indispensable we are 
as a force of good, but also for each other. Ambassador Lambernitas, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you think is important that we cover before we end? You know, not really. No, I, I, I would say that um, I understand how people looking at this war in this country after over a year, maybe getting tired. But I will tell you that there is no safe distance from an autocrat sitting on nuclear weapons who is convinced that he can bend the will of our people and our leaders to his own through force. He cannot succeed. That is what I want people to keep in mind. Stavros Lambernidis, the EU's ambassador to the U.S. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, some new evidence that the hit squads from Russia may be active again, not just in Russia, but everywhere. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.